0: If you, if you haven't been with us for a while, we've been going through a series on holiness, this, this idea that the God himself is, is separate from his creation and, and that has implications for his existence and our relationship to him. And then consequently, we who follow him have also been set apart to serve him. And so we had talked about how God expects certain things of us, how we are to live in a certain way as a result of our holiness. And now we're, we're shifting back into Philippians, which we were in in the fall. But as we, as we get back into Philippians, I just want to encourage you that, that just because we're not talking about holiness, it does not mean we don't need to seek holiness. Uh, this is something that I hope that we will continue to think about. I know that it's something that I'm challenged by on a daily basis and so as we consider the word of God today, let's, let's allow God to speak to the issues of, of holiness in our own lives as well. Amen? Amen. Have you ever uh, driven to the wrong place on autopilot? Maybe, maybe your, your spouse, your wife, or your, your husband gives you, you know, hey, can you dr- drop by the grocery store on the way home and get these few things? And you're like, absolutely, I, I will certainly do that because I'm a good husband and I'm awesome. And then you're driving and you're listening to the radio and the news and getting frustrated by that and traffic. And then you're just on autopilot and then you drive up to your, your garage or, or, or your parking space and you realize, oh. I have completely forgotten to do what I was supposed to because your normal behavior was to just drive from work back home and your muscle memory takes over and you are not at the grocery store. If we're not careful, we'll sometimes end up where we did not mean to be. And in this passage, Paul is going to encourage us to be careful about the Christian life. We have a self-righteous autopilot that will always take us to the wrong place if we're not careful. And so, when it comes to life, you and I, we must be intentional to trust God and not ourselves. Amen. I'll repeat that. When it comes to our lives, we must be, you must be intentional to trust God and not yourself. So let's stand together and read Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also." If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I, get, I had, I counted lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you as those who habitually trust ourselves, uh, who struggle with our internal nature, the sin nature that that is bent towards self-righteousness, that is bent away from you and towards worship of other things. And God, I pray that as we consider your words through Paul, that we would seek to be intentional in trusting you. Trusting you above all things. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So it's been a little while since we've been in this book, so just by way of refresher, Paul is an apostle. He's kind of the apostle out of season. He had persecuted the church and then got saved and now serves as the really the apostle to the Gentiles, of which the Philippians are some. And he's writing to the Philippians. And this is a really neat letter. I would encourage you, if you've never read it, to go back and read it because it's one of the few letters where Paul is not uh, frustrated. Or p- perhaps I should put it, he, he's not addressing a whole lot of brokenness in, in this church. There are some issues and there are these two women that, that we'll meet a little bit later on who are, uh, causing some division. And we have a sense that there may be some, there's some division, but overall he's very pleased with this church. They had expressed love and care for him. He's in prison and they had had sent a, a man to him to, to, um, to bring a gift, Epaphroditus, and this was one of the leaders in their church, and they sent you know, they sent some of their best in order to minister to Paul in his need, and so he's he's thankful for that. They had also ministered to him and and partnered with him monetarily, financially, with their resources for the gospel, and these were people who were just committed to to this man, and and so he is thankful for them, and he expresses that a number of different times. But here he's he's starting to talk about some of the dangers that, that we might experience, um, we'll, we'll be reminded like the Philippians that, that we have to be intentional to trust Christ. Um, why, why do we have to be intentional? That's, that's a question you ought to ask yourself. Why can't I just trust, you know, I trusted in Jesus maybe, um, I, I, I walked down the aisle when I was seven or, or I gave my life to the Lord in college and, and why do I need to work at this thing? And I think we'll see in this, this text three reasons that, that we need to be careful. First of all, um, sometimes we get confused, but God is the only one who saves. And, and you may say to yourself, well, I know, I know the gospel, Pastor Eddie. I, you know, I know that Jesus saves. But, but there's something insidious and, and sneaky about our own sense of self-righteousness. And and if you're trying to argue with me, you're proving the point. If in your heart you're saying, "Well, no, no, I don't do that, God." Or I don't do that. I don't I don't do that, Pastor Eddie. I, that's an indication that there is probably self-righteousness there because that is the natural state of humanity even as we are saved. There there's self-righteousness that we have to fight against. So, we we need to be intentional because God is the one who saves. We also need to be intentional because if we're honest, there's always someone who is better than us. There's always someone who's better than us. So whatever we set the bar to, there's a higher bar, and that ought to challenge us with the question of, okay, what, how much is enough? If, if this is the bar of righteousness that I'm setting and I see this guy here, why isn't his bar the bar of righteousness? And then finally, we need to be intentional because nothing ultimately compares to what Christ has done for us. Nothing compares to what Christ has done with us. So you and I, we must be intentional to trust God because, as, as we'll see in verses 1 through 3, God is the one who saves us. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And when he talks about writing the same things, what we probably think he means is not just um, talking about verse 2, looking out for these, these evildoers, but just Paul's own testimony, as we're going to hear. His testimony from going from self-righteousness to to Christ-righteousness. And he says, it's no problem for me to to write this to you, and it's safe for you. It's it's good for you to hear this. Verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the the flesh. That, That phrase, look out, it can also be translated as consider, think about. And then he describes these individuals who Mutilate the flesh. Now, I'm not going to go into specifics, just get a study Bible, but suffice it to say, there were those within the church and even out of the church who held a, a Jewish standard, standard of righteousness. And in the Old Testament, God gives Abraham a standard, okay, this is how you'll know that, that these are the people of God. You are going to circumcise the male uh, children. And that was an indication that, that those people were part of the covenant of God. In other words, they had been set apart for God. And, and that, that language of circumcision almost began to be uh, a, a way of indicating obedience to the law that God gave through Moses. Now, when Jesus comes, he fulfills the law. He does all that, that he is supposed to do. He, he does not fail to th- do the things he, he should do, and he doesn't do the things that he shouldn't do. He lives a life of, of absolute righteousness and obedience to the law And then he offers eternal life to us. And in in this new covenantal existence under Christ, we don't have to follow the law. We don't necessarily have to do the things that they did to mark them as separate unto God. But there were those who said that you did. There were those that said, you know what, Jesus is important. You absolutely need to trust in him. But you also need to get circumcised. And Jesus is important, and and, and you need to trust in him, but there are other things that that Moses gave us that you need to do. And so these people would, would come in and begin to say, it's not just Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. It's Jesus plus this aspect of your own righteousness equals salvation. And so Paul says, consider them. Consider the, those who, who would say that you have to be circumcised. Consider them and, and the outward markings that they're saying that we need to have in order to prove our own righteousness. And what does he say? We, verse 3, are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory what in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. You know, people love to think that they're good enough for God. You know, when I'm by myself, sometimes I think I'm okay. I'm a pretty good guy. You know, I I interact with people. Some are are inspiring. Others, their lives are a mess. And certainly in moments like that, there's a temptation to to say, well, I can help you because I've got things figured out. And, and, And I'm not saying it's Absolutely, live a life of holiness and righteousness. Please, live a life of wisdom. Figure stuff out, do the right things, don't do the wrong things. But there's a difference between doing those things and then beginning to trust those things as if, you know, I got here on my own. I did this and I got here and, and Jesus really, he made a good choice because he could see something in me. Um, we, we begin to think something along the lines of Jesus can take you so far, but you have, to, you have to contribute something. And again, I'm not talking about doing things in obedience to Jesus as our Lord, but doing things and saying, you know, we're co-pilots, Jesus plus me, and we're making this work, and, and we have created my salvation, not he has created. We're tempted uh, to boast. Maybe you're not tempted to boast in, in your obedience to the Mosaic law. I don't imagine there are many of you who are like, you know, as Paul circumcised on the eighth day, Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin. That's not necessarily our, our deal, but we all have temptations to, to trust in our outward fleshly, this is what I can do, this is what I can uh, produce, this is how efficient I can be. That's, that's what makes me special. He talks about it, Jeremiah mentions it in, in Jeremiah chapter 9 about the temptations of man verse 23 and 24, Jeremiah chapter 9, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. You hear what he's saying? He, he doesn't say, you know, degrade yourself, demean yourself Treat as though you don't have the giftings that you have. But he says, you know what? If, you, if you're wise, don't boast in your wisdom. Don't trust in your wisdom. If you're strong, don't trust in your strength. But trust in the Lord. What do you, what do you boast in? What do you, what do you boast in? I mean, and if you're struggling to answer that question, because I don't think most of us get on Facebook and say, I'm, I'm boasting in blah, blah, blah. Well, what is it that you kind of front when you meet someone, what do you lead out with? You know, I'm tempted to lead out with, you know, we live in an, in an IT world. If you throw a rock, you'll hit a contractor. And um, many of you have IT backgrounds. Some of you have shadowy IT backgrounds and, you know, secrets that, that no one knows about. Or in, in this world, I'm tempted. To, I did IT too. I mean, even now as I'm saying it, I feel like, should I use that as an example? But here we are. Um, I'm not trying to boast. I'm trying to say that I'm tempted to boast. And I'm tempted to, to put what I have in front of, you know, I, there are certain things I can't boast about, you know. I didn't play football and I don't, I'm not boasting about that. But I, I did do IT and, uh, you know, whatever. What, what are you tempted to boast about, you know, single people, when, when, when you come across someone of the opposite sex that you want to notice you, what, what do you put in front of me? Oh, I'm from, I don't know what it would be. When I was in college, it wasn't a whole lot. I just played guitar and hoped for the best. Um, it did work. <laughs> Single people. Um, what do you lead out with? Paul mentions these people as, as examples, and uh, they were boasting in their own efforts. But what is he commanded, verse 1? He says, rejoice in the Lord. When you go to a football game, you don't cheer for the goalposts. Or if you do, everyone looks at you funny and you might be escorted out. You cheer for the team that wins. Or you cheer for the team that scores. And and when it comes to our lives, we, we don't rejoice in our own greatness. We rejoice in the Lord because he is the one who has won. See, Paul is saying, rejoice in the one who has actually done something in your life. Rejoice in the Lord. People who boast in the flesh focus on externals, what I can do, what I can accomplish, what I can produce. And when I say people who boast in the Lord, I mean us. When we boast in, or sorry, people who boast in the flesh, when we boast in the flesh, we're boasting in what we can do, what we can accomplish, what we can produce, but none of us can produce salvation. None of us can muster that up on our own. So Paul tells us in verse 3, he says, we are the circumcision who worship what? By the Spirit of God, who has been given by the Son, and glory in Christ Jesus. And we put what? No confidence in the flesh. We don't trust our flesh. We trust and worship Jesus Christ, the one who has saved us. God is the one who saves. And if you're in this room, you, don't, you don't, don't personally have a relationship with Jesus, this is what distinguishes us from so many other religions is, is that the, it, it isn't do really good and then God will let you in. No, it's trust God who has done really good to let you in. Now, once you're in, there's, there's an effort that, that is expected in, in worshipful response to, to what God has done. But that worshipful response isn't the thing that opens the door or brings you into the kingdom. God brings you in through Jesus Christ. We must be intentional to trust God because God is the one who saves. We also must be intentional because there's always someone who's better than us. Uh, Paul has this interesting thought experiment. And sometimes he does these in, in, in his letters. He says, you know what, let's let's think about this for a second. So he says in verse 3, we are the circumcision. In other words, we are the ones who have been set apart who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. And then he pauses. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. And he's talking to them. He's saying, you know what? Are you tempted to trust in yourself? Well, just let me talk about myself. And he begins to give his resume. If anyone else thinks he's reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, uh, his parents had been obedient in, in following the law to have him circumcised on the eighth day, eighth day. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I mean, he was not, he was not uh, on the fringes of the, the Israelite society. He was not on the fringes of God's people. He was right there in the middle. A Hebrew of Hebrews, that means he spoke the Hebrew language, It wasn't just by birth, but it was by upbringing. As to the law, a Pharisee. In other words, he was a a separatist. He had had studied the law. He had focused on the law. He had separated himself from others who would not and could not and and did not follow the law. He was faithful in his own mind to the law as much as possible. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. In other words, he, he considered the enemies of God worthy of persecution and then he went after them. Now on this side of things we understand that he was wrong but on on, on his side prior to salvation he was passionate. He was not lukewarm. He was not uh, uninterested. He was pursuing God's what he thought to be God's purposes. A persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law blameless. How bold of a statement. The The Old Testament had a lot of laws, over 600. And he says, blameless. Blameless. He's not being facetious. He's not being hyperbolic. He's saying, that was my life. That was my existence. You think think your bar of righteousness, it's high? Mine was higher. He was a perfect candidate to trust in himself. But how does he respond? He lists out all of these things. He gives us his resume. Here, have a look at this. Objectives, self-righteousness, qualifications, all of them. What does he say? But whatever I gain, sorry, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He takes his resume and he sets it on fire. He says, this means nothing compared to knowing Jesus Christ. Whatever credentials Paul had, he was happy to give them up for Christ. What about you and me? What does that have to do? That's nice. Great. Good to hear. Happy for you, Paul. But if Paul thinks it's necessary to give up his credentials, do you think that you and I can be confident in our credentials? If he takes his resume and says, you know what? This isn't going to be enough. I need Christ. Do you think what you have is enough? I said that in love. I can tell you right now it's, what I have is not enough. Like Paul is here and I'm somewhere under the stage. If, if he doesn't see that his self-righteousness is sufficient, that should sh- show us something about our own self-righteousness. He's not trying to make you feel bad for the sake of feeling bad. He's trying to um, disabuse you, trying to take away your desire to trust your own self-righteousness. He counts it as loss. In the end, there's nothing really that compares to what God has accomplished for us in Christ. There's, there's nothing. Again, if you're in this room and you've never really put your trust in Jesus, there's nothing that we can do as people that will compare to what God has accomplished in his son, Jesus Christ. We have to be intentional to trust God because nothing compares to what he's done. Have you ever had one of those days where you wake up and you're like, today's gonna be the day that I change. I'm gonna be nice. I'm gonna stop being so grumpy in about five minutes after I wake up get my coffee but you, you commit to yourself I'm gonna be kind today I'm not gonna I'm not gonna grumble at Bill in accounting even though he's really obnoxious and doesn't answer his emails you know you get to work and you're driving and, and you're on 66 I'm not gonna freak out about the traffic you get on the metro I'm not gonna freak out about all these strangers you get to work I'm not gonna freak out about my boss, who doesn't listen to the qualifications or the, the scope and tells me to do things that I shouldn't do or can't do, treats me like I'm some sort of magician. Not, but, but by the end of the day, you're both exhausted and frustrated, and you realize you're a hopeless failure. Is that just me? <laughs> you, you, it's hard. Maybe it's not kindness. Maybe it's patience. And then you just go to Starbucks and it just out the window. You, you, get, you get to the drive through line. You're like, Why is this? This is not fast food. This is barely food. What am I doing here? It's exhausting. The reality is trying to show how righteousness we are by our externals is exhausting. We can't do it. There's always, there's always one more thing that I could have done. There's always one more thing that I should have done. And then there's this pesky record of all my other junk that I can't do anything about, right? Unless you have a DeLorean, there's no hope for the past. And given our present, even if we did have a time machine, going to the past would just muck everything up even worse. One of the greatest reasons we should be intentional to trust God is because God has made salvation independent of our efforts. That's good news. It's really funny because um, we have these, these, this cognitive dissonance. On the one hand, we're like, uh, I, I want to do awesome. I can change. And on the other hand, we, we wake up and you're like, I'm not going to change. And we don't. But we have this thought, I, I, well, I can do that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. But the reality is we, we can't and we don't. And we need someone who, who can provide salvation outside of us. Because, family, if you could do it, you would have done it. If you could do it, if you could fix your relationship with God, if that was a possibility for you, you would have done it. But this is good news because because God has done it. You don't have to earn it. Listen to what he says in verse 10. He goes, all oh, I'll start in verse 8. He says, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. All of his credentials, he says, I'm letting that stuff go. You know, I had a PhD in, in, in awesomeness. And I'm, I'm, I'm not using it. I'm not counting on it. I'm, I'm, I'm letting it go. And, and, and I, I count gain being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in death, in order that I may, by any means possible, attain to resurrection from the dead. He says, I, rather than trusting in myself, I'm going to trust in God. On, on the righteousness that, that He gives me by faith. You see, there's this, this doctrine that, that sometimes we talk about this doctrine of justification by faith alone. And, and the idea is that you and I, we, because we have broken God's law, because we are sinners, there's a condemnation. There's, there's a punishment that you and I deserve. We, we talk about that sometimes. You do bad things, you, you get a, a punishment. We have sinned against, we have disobeyed, we have offended a, an infinitely worthy, infinitely holy, infinitely good God, and there's an infinitely uh, proportionate response that's deserved to us. And we can't do anything about it. As I said, all the good things that you do, all those pesky things in the background, we can't do anything about it. But what Jesus does is he comes and he lives a perfect life we should have lived. He dies on the cross for our sins in our place and he rises again from the dead, which is an indication that he did not deserve to die because only those who are sinners die. But because he dies in our place and then comes back from the dead, God says, you know what? He was righteous, And he says that anyone who does this, who trusts in what I accomplished, anyone who trusts in what I accomplished will receive my record of righteousness. And those pesky sins from the past, the sins of the present, the sins of the future, he takes that whole record and he nails it to the cross. That's that justification by faith. And that's the thing that Paul says, I am trusting the faith in Christ, sorry, trusting that which comes through faith in Christ, namely the righteousness that is from God, that depends not on my behavior, not on my works, not on my the things I can boast in, but in, depends on faith in God. And then he says something pretty interesting. He says in verse eleven or verse ten, uh, "I I do all this." So that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, right? We're all, we're all on the same page. Yes, Paul, we want to know the power of God's resurrection. We're, we're there with you. And then he says, and may, may share in his sufferings. What? No. No, I don't want to share in his sufferings. I'm, I'm good. We, we, we're all full. I've opened my pantry. got plenty of sufferings. I don't need any more. But what does he say? Huh. Becoming like him in his death. I don't want to do that. That, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Here's what's crazy about Christian life is that it's only when you die that you can experience new life. And and those things that you say, God, look at this. Doesn't this make me worthwhile? Doesn't this make it worth it? He says, no, you gotta die to that. Not that we don't appreciate God's gifts. Some of you are brilliant people and you do amazing things and you develop awesome stuff. Some of you are massively kind and, and nurturing and you, and you bring people, children, adults, whoever, into a fold and you love them as teachers or as, as nurses. And, and you've got all of these gifts and those are good things. But when it comes to opening the door to God's heart, opening the door to heaven, we, we bring these things and we try to un- unlock them with these things. And God says, no, 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 you have to let those things go. But I've got a key for you but you can't have both. You can't hold both. You have to put down these things in order to pick up the key that I have for you. When we die to these things, when we don't allow those things to define us any longer, and we allow Christ to define us, when we become people who are living the life Christ would live if he was us, then we have the opportunity to experience the resurrection from the dead. And and it's not just figurative. There's a real resurrection from the dead that we'll experience, but anyways. We have to be intentional to trust in God because there's so much in us that wants to trust in ourselves. There's a story as I close in, in Luke that kind of, I think, illustrates this well. Jesus is on the cross, He's being crucified, and people are watching, and in, in Luke chapter 23, verse starting in verse 2, it says, two others, two other men, in other words, who were criminals were led away and put, to be put to death with him, talking about Jesus, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, and I mean, just take a moment and think about that. It, I think we skip to where they're already on the cross, but there's a process by which they got on the cross. And I don't know if they tied his arms down so that he wouldn't jerk when they were nailing his hand into the wood. But there, was, there was some significant gruesome nastiness that happened in that moment. They're laying down, I assume, to be nailed. And he's listening to the screams of these guys. Maybe Jesus screams, we don't know. And then they push him up into the, I guess there's a hole in the ground and he sinks into the hole and there's this moment of jerk where his whole body weight jerks his hands and his feet. And everyone is, the three of them are in in a great amount of pain. And Jesus said to, said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Uh, And all the while, people were casting lots dividing his garment they were they were rolling dice to see who got to take Jesus's stuff and the people stood by watching by the rulers uh, sorry and the people stood by watching but the rulers scoffed at him saying he saved others let him save himself if he's the Christ of God and his chosen one the soldiers also mocked him coming up and offered him sour wine saying if you're the king of kings sorry the king of the jews save yourself and in one of the other um, Gospels, it records that the criminals were, were mocking him, both of them. But then here we see in verse 39, one of the criminals who was hang, hanging railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other who, who we think had been also mocking Jesus, he had prior been mocking Jesus, it says this, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. Hey, we're up here because we did bad things. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. What did that guy have to boast about? I mean, he, he was a self-confessed criminal who was getting what He deserved. He had nothing to boast about, and and if if we take the the other gospel seriously, he had been making fun of the creator of all existence just a few minutes before. And how gracious is God? How gracious is Jesus? Not just to say, you know what, I'll forgive you. Fine. He says, truly, I, I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. I, mean, I had this image of, of God Jesus coming into heaven and, and holding this guy's hand and saying, Come with me, let me show you around. But it wasn't because of anything that, that guy had done. It was because he had trusted in the one who saves. It wasn't his resume, it wasn't anything he had accomplished. What was this thief trusting? Was he trusting his own goodness? No. His own own prowess, his own strengths, his own certifications? No, he was trusting in Jesus. We need to trust in Jesus. You need to trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I confess that it is so easy to fall into the temptation, to submit to the temptation of trusting myself. Not just being thankful and trying to seek to be obedient, but trusting that it is my obedience or my behavior that somehow curries favor with you. But God, your word is clear that that justification is by faith alone. That we're made right not by our behavior, but our faith in what you have done. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ and you want to trust him today, you want to stop trusting yourself, would you raise your hand? I want to pray with you. Great. See those hands. Once they're up, you can put them back down. I want you to pray with me. God, I, I know that I've trusted in myself in my own sense of righteousness that I was better than that person or the other person. But God, I see that even my best attempts are rubbish or trash compared to, to you. But God, I thank you that you have provided a way in Jesus and I trust him today. I trust his life, his death and his resurrection today. God, help me to trust him and live in joyful obedience, knowing that you love me, not because of what I can offer you, but because you love me. In Jesus' name I pray.